1208. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. You have long-range forecast. Once we get to Sunday, uh, temperatures for the next week or so appear to be in the 20s and the 30s, which is definitely something that is livable. All right. I understand that there's some people out there who want to be apologists and say, well, crime in the city of Milwaukee isn't that bad, to which you, you want to say, what what? What planet are you living on? Yes, maybe crime here isn't as bad as Baltimore, or maybe there's not as many murders as Chicago, but you get the type of community that you are willing to put up with. And unfortunately, in southeastern Wisconsin, especially in the city of Milwaukee, we are willing to accept unacceptable levels of crime. For every horrible story, though, occasionally there is a good one. Um, we all know now that in Tom Barrett and Ashanti Hamilton's Milwaukee, in John Chisholm's city of Milwaukee, in Chris Abley's city of Milwaukee within um, Milwaukee County, you, you really the, the criminals are running out of control. If it's cold outside, you cannot leave your car unattended for a moment if it's running because it's going to be gone. If you are a guest in downtown Milwaukee, well, all right, if you're loading up wedding packages into your car on New Year's Day and you turn your back for just a couple moments, your car is going to be gone. That's where we are right now. And then you have the really egregious cases. I was talking about this one a couple days ago. Christmas Day, you have a family of four, husband, wife, two children, both of whom have disabilities and need wheelchairs and oxygen tanks. They are at their house. They are warming up their van while they are outside. I mean, it's not even like they have abandoned the car and just left it for 15 minutes. They are outside. The car has wheelchairs and oxygen tanks for the kids. They are putting Christmas presents in the car, and they've got the car running because they want it to be warm when the kids who have disabilities, get into the car. The husband, he's bringing packages. He's bringing Christmas presents from the porch to the car. That moment where he turns his back to go get the package, you have thieves that come in and steal the vehicle, including the wheelchairs. This is what is going on in this community, and it is unfortunately acceptable. You get these people poo-pooing and saying, well, we don't think crime is that far, is that out of control. So ultimately, they find the van a couple days later, Everything inside is stolen out of it. The van is torched. Um, and so you got this family that is struggling. So that's, of course, the bad story. The good story is, since this story was first reported on television and later on in other media outlets, um, strangers have come forward. And apparently um, there's a number of people right now who are you know, trying to make arrangements, uh, making donations. Uh, there's an online donation page that has raised nearly $4,000 in one day. And another groups of organizations are reaching out to people who want to contribute. And that, that's great. That shows that there's a lot of decent people out there. But let's not lose, lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of really crummy people out there. There's a lot of awful human beings. And my guess is, first of all, I, don't, I doubt they're ever going to be able to catch who stole and torched that car. I, I doubt they'll ever be caught. But my guess is, if you did catch them, you would find that they had a lengthy criminal record of doing the same things. Maybe they were juveniles. Maybe they were adults. I don't know. But there's going to be a lengthy criminal record of doing this, and they've been sent back out on the streets to do it over and over and over again. 
good people willing to step up and help victims in the community. But I guess my question is, why do we allow ourselves to continue to be victimized? Why do we put up with judges that put people back out on the streets to do these things over and over and over again? When are we going to demand enough is enough? All right, we start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. Story number one, well, it's the national story. It's the fallout from this book, which is coming out early next week. It's already number one with the pre-sales on all the different bestseller lists. Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House. Uh, The guy who wrote this is a a well-known kind of gadfly. His name is Michael Wolf, and that, that's the way, best way I describe him. One of his greatest claims to fame is he, he gets tossed out of a lot of restaurants in New York for getting into fights. But, you know, he, he, he's been around. He's very, very controversial. He's written lots of stuff in the past um, that, that turn out to be poorly sourced or, or not true. So that's kind of the background of this. He's written the book that's getting all this attention. To start off with, what and I said this yesterday, what is mind-boggling to me is that the Trump administration would have given this guy any sort of access at, at all. Um, the president's people deny that he ever inter- sat down for an interview with him. The author says, no, he, he I, I most certainly did talk to him. But there, there's no question. What happened is the author, who, again, has a track record of writing sort of sketchily sourced tell-all books, he he camped out in the West Wing. You know, the, the West Wing is the area where all the president's aides, you know, go in and out and stuff. You saw the TV show The West Wing. It, it's where all the people close to the president, you know, hang out. This guy, who at best is a gadfly, was apparently allowed to just go and sit on sofas in the West Wing for, you know, hours a day, once or twice a week. And he would just sit there and he'd watch people coming and going. And as people would, you know, come out of meetings in the Oval Office, he'd stop them and he'd talk to them. Now, to me, it's just, and and his story is the Trump administration was so absolutely disorganized and, you know, everybody was walking on eggshells. Nobody knew if I was allowed to be there or not. So nobody asked me questions. I mean, and and I guess this would start with the president, I guess. My, My question would be if there's somebody... You know, sitting in the office, you know, day after day, and I know who this guy is, and he's this muckraking book writer. My first question would be, what is he doing here? That's number one. And secondly, why hasn't somebody kicked his butt to the curb? You know, so I I fault the Trump administration and the president for allowing this guy to be there. What were people doing? Apparently, a lot of people also give interviews with him. And now you have this incredibly controversial book with all the Steve Bannon stuff and all in it. Interestingly... The, the author, Michael Wolf, he, he's going out and as part of his interview tour to sell this book, he's saying, hey, I don't know if the stuff I put in this book is true. He says, I put what people told me. And he said, sometimes I talk to three or four people about the same event and they'd give me different stories. And sometimes I thought these people, I, I just, I figured, you know, one of these people was just absolutely lying about this or that or the other thing, but I just put it out there. I put it in the book anyways, which is sort of interesting because 
normally when you get these type of books, the, the writer goes out, and if they get conflicting stories, they try to figure out what really happened. Well, that's not what this guy did. He just kind of took it all and threw it up against the wall and says, all right, let, let's, let's let people decide. So he freely admits that there's lots of stuff, or at least some stuff, in the book, which he even believes to be false. But he says, hey, I was told this by, by so-and-so, and yeah, so-and-so could very well have been lying. I think he might have been lying, or she might have been lying, or whatever, but I put it in, in there anyways. So that's the background, and, and part of it is a starting point. It's still mind-boggling to me that people in the Trump administration would allow somebody like this to just camp out you know, on a sofa in the White House, in the West Wing of the White House, and, and wait for people to come by week after week after week without anybody saying anything. Well, in any event, this, this book has really, really startling allegations. The biggest stuff is the stuff that Steve Bannon has to say, and Bannon is now on the outs with the Trump administration. Um, President Trump has been trying, including um, as recently as yesterday, to block, you know, legally block the publication of this book that I think it's fair to say it portrays him and his administration as being incompetent and erratic. And, you know, the attorneys for Trump, these are the personal attorneys, are demanding that both the author and the publisher immediately cease and desist from any further publication, release, or dissemination of the book, as well as to apologize uh, to Trump. They are going to try to block, you know, block the publisher from producing this book. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is relatively unprecedented. I mean, you have controversial books that come, I said relatively, I mean it is unprecedented. You have controversial books that come out all the time about political figures. This one appears to be, I think, perhaps even more controversial than most. But, you know, it's going to be published unless the Trump campaign, unless President Trump or his lawyers can get publication blocked. So let me tee this up. Um, The author admits that there's lots of stuff, or at least there is stuff in the book, which even he believes is false. But it was told to him. So he's just reporting this and saying, hey, this is what somebody told. This person might be lying to me. But, you know, you decide. All right. Should should the publication of this book be stopped? Is President Trump correct in saying, hey, this should never see the light of day? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you where I come down on this in just a minute. But, all right, should the courts intervene? Should the Trump administration be running the court saying, hey, this book admittedly has a lot of falsehoods in it or lies or whatever. Um, you need to stop its publication. How do you feel about that, whether you're a Trump fan or not? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Big Story Number 1. It's 1219. This is Jeff Wagner. 1221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Paul in Milwaukee. Paul, good afternoon. How are you doing? Uh, uh, first of all, I'd like to say I am a Democrat, but I would like to say this is their own stupidity for allowing this guy in there. Yeah. They should have. They should have. Now their quotes from these people, let them dispute them now and say that they lied about it or misspoke about it. You know, I mean, 
the whole thing comes down to just playing being dumb. Right, know, right. Being dumb to allow somebody who has a history of being a muckraker, a very, very controversial guy. I'll use journalists in quotation marks. What are you doing allowing him in the West Wing sitting on a sofa, you know, for a couple hours a day, once a week? It is insane that this happened. It is. It's like letting the fox in the hen house to stay overnight. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, right, and then wondering when it breaks bad. No, I mean, thanks for calling. See, at first, when I first heard about the story, and thanks for the call, Paul. When I first heard about the story, I thought what was going to happen is it was going to turn out that that the Trump had selected this guy to be his official biographer. Hmm. Um, which I thought was a curious choice. Why in the universe of people would, would you pick him? But, I mean, maybe that's why he got the access. But, no, he was just somebody who decided, hey, I'm going to kind of hang around and see what ends up happening, and they let him hang around. Who lets them hang around? Who lets somebody like this hang around? And his story is the Trump Organization and the Trump White House, um, it was just such a disaster that nobody – Nobody really thought to ask me to leave because everybody figured that I must have had permission to be there and nobody wanted to ask Donald Trump about this. So they just let me sit there. Um, you know, wow. All right. Lori says, I believe that the administration was disorganized. Maybe the stories aren't all factual, but with all the security surrounding the president, how does a guy just hang out? Absolutely. How do you just hang out and sit down in, in the West Wing? Look, here, here's the point. I don't know what is true and what is not true in this book. I, I, I don't. But the idea that the, the president or the president's lawyers or any president or any president's lawyers thinks that they can block publication of a book is just, is just nuts. Um, now, there are remedies. If it turns out that the book is libelous, you know, slanderous, you know, what libelous would be the thing. I mean, then what you have, defamatory, then, then you could go to court and you can sue. You can say, hey, th- this is this is false. Now, if you're a public figure, it's very, very difficult to do that because the president is a public figure. You're going to have to prove, you know, actual malice, you know, to do that. So the chances of, even if there's stuff that's in there that's false, the chances of being able to recover are, are slim to none. But this is kind of what comes with the territory. I don't think there's any legal basis at all to try to block publication of this book. And candidly, I think by the president doing what he's done, he's probably helped sell another 250,000 copies of the the book. Um, I don't know what's going to be true or this or not, but I'll tell you, I... Um, later on today, I'm going to order a copy of it, you know, because as soon as it comes out, I'm, I'm going to want to read it. Um, it's also, the thing is, with the author, I mean, if the author... And it's an if, if the author, you know, is accurately as accurately quoting people. I mean, if there really were people that told him this, that, or the other thing, well, then the the causes of action that the president might have, to the extent there is a cause of action, you know, that's against the people that said those those type of things. I mean, um, mostly. Uh, again, if I somebody comes and says, "Hey, Jeff, this is what's happening here," and I'm willing to stand behind these things, and even if I don't think it's true. I don't know. Is it my fault if the person's willing to say that? In any event, this there's no way that this book gets blocked, which is why giving access to this man to write it in the first place is just bizarre. And by the way, I think President Trump's going to survive this. Um, but again, it's going to be another one of these distractions. Let's talk to Bonnie in Milwaukee. Bonnie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Hi, Bonnie. Hi. 
Um, I think there's no way that he could block it. It's legal. But he's a narcissist. It makes perfect sense that in his extreme narcissistic world that he would ask this guy into the White House. Mm-hmm. I think it's his advantage to get Bannon out of there and to be um, separated from him in any way for the Republicans. It's their advantage. And for our country, it's our advantage. And to marginalize Steve Bannon. Uh, if, if, to, to marginalize Steve Bannon and get Bannon out of politics if we can. Oh, I agree with you. If, if that's your yeah, point, I agree I with mean, you completely. I am not a Republican, and I'm ashamed that he's president. I certainly don't want him. I do think it will hurt him in the long run. Um, I think a lot of those things in the book, although I haven't read it, are probably gossipy, and some of them are false. But um, (laughs) I think in a lot of ways, um, it's to his advantage, too. Well, I I mean, thanks. I mean, I I don't don't know that it's, it's tough to see... The advantage you have from people, if this guy, and again, I haven't read the book either. It's coming out next week. I've, I've read lengthy excerpts that were in, uh, the New York Magazine, and I've read the, um, I, I've read, like, summaries of this in places like Variety, and I've read interviews that they did with this wolf character. I, I mean, I'm not sure short term, uh, there's too much upside to Donald Trump. I, I do, Agree to the point that to the extent that this marginalizes Steve Bannon, who I think has been a cancer on American politics and certainly a cancer in the Republican Party. I mean, Steve Bannon was this guy that's been traveling around the country with some rich people's money behind him trying to find fringe candidates, you know, some of these alt-right characters to run against mainstreams, quote-unquote, establishment Republicans. And, you know, we, we saw what happened in, in Alabama when, you know, the Steve backed can, Bannon-backed candidate Roy Moore ran and, you know, lost the seat that Republicans have held for 45-some years. So the more you can marginalize Steve Bannon, the better. So if that's a good thing that comes out of it, so be it. Big story number two is coming up. What the heck is going on at MPS, and why did the superintendent think she could get away with what she did? Oh, I know the answer to that, and I'll tell you about it. 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1236, WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner. Gene Miller turns late-night star as Jimmy Fallon decides to sport a wig, mustache, and microphone, mimicking a 1980s picture of our beloved Wisconsin's Morning News host. To see it for yourself, text the word Fallon. To the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. The only defense is that we all looked like that in 1983. Well, yeah, I, I still carry around back. Now, Grusey, you would not remember this. You are too young. But in Wisconsin, your driver's licenses just used to be paper driver's licenses, and they didn't have your picture on them. They were just It was like a little piece of paper, and that, that's what you would get. And th- this was your regular driver's license. So since it didn't have your picture on it, it wasn't good for identification. Back in the day, the drinking age was, was 18. So if you wanted to drink, you couldn't use your driver's license as proof of identification because, you know, you, you could have anybody's driver's license. So you had to get a, a state ID card. I still carry around my state ID card. So this shows me when I was 18 years old, and my only defense is we all looked like that in 1975. I, I, for, I, the reason people say, why do you carry around? Because it, it makes for interesting conversations sometimes, and I had really, really long hair, and I, I think 
you can see, I, for reasons of past understanding, I was wearing a leisure suit when we took this picture. So it's, it's, all right, I cannot mock Gene Miller's appearance in 1983 because, like I say, I've got my ID from 1975, and again, we just all looked like that in 1975. Uh, so that is my only, only defense. Big story number two. Um, this was first reported, I don't know if it's been reported anywhere else, but, but Fox 6 had this story first. The the Milwaukee public school system, and whenever we talk about MPS, some people get upset about this, but the MPS is, MPS is a failing school system. You, you've got some really good success stories, um, but you've got a lot of schools that are, we'll say, struggling to be charitable about this. And there's lots of reasons for this. You've got, again... Um, you know, you're dealing in some of the some of the schools are dealing with just kids coming from abject poverty and kids whose parents are punched out and could care less about education. And in many cases, you know, kids whose you know parents might not even be around. There, there's all sorts of of reasons why MPS is in the situation it's in, in in. And you know, MPS is always pleading poverty. We need money. We need money. We need money. Well, MPS has a lot of money. But as we've learned, the problems at MPS are, are just so structured and so deep that simply throwing money at the situation, you know, does not help. But all right, it, it is an issue. And MPS also ha- has problems keeping and retaining good teachers. Now, that's just the reality. One of the things that has come from Act 10 is that school districts are now able to go out and they can try to recruit you know, the, the good teachers, and you can pay more for the teachers that you want to retain. You know, the teacher salaries aren't stuck to, gee, the only way you can get a raise is to be here X number of years or get a master's degree. You know, you, you can reward, you know, good teachers, and you can get rid of dead wood. But, but that all depends on MPS or any school district, you know, being committed to trying to make this work. Now, let me back into this, this story. One of the things that has frustrated me since I have been doing this program is the fact that whenever school districts plead poverty, oh, we, we don't have enough money to do this or that or the other thing, one of the items that they never want to talk about is how much they spend, they pay to administrators. Years ago, you will remember in Racine, Racine Unified, they kept going back time and time again and asking for referendums to spend more money. And, and they would say, well, if we don't get this referendum passed, you know, we're going to have to do away with after school sports. It was always that type of stuff. Uh, they never looked at the number of bureaucrats they had on their payroll, for example, who were making six figures. And this was a number of years ago. You never hear them say, well, you know, we could get rid of three assistant, you know, administrators who are each making $125,000 a year before benefits. No, they didn't want to talk about that. It's, no, we can't have after-school workshops or anything like this. All right, so here, here's the deal. Um, there's apparently a little bit of a pot of money that was around to give raises to MPS administrators. Um, This was buried in a line item in the budget. Uh, The MPS, according to the union, I think I have the numbers here, uh, according to the union, um, teachers, the teachers, you know, in the MPS system ended up getting about $143,000 in raises over the course of the last year. The administrators Apparently, the top 23 administrators 
at MPS received $100,000 in raises. The largest single increase went to one employee who got a raise of over 17600 What's drawing so much attention, though, is the way this was apparently done. The superintendent of, of MPS apparently doesn't have to go to the school board and get permission to give people raises as long as the raises are um, as long as the raises are under ten percent, and the employee is being reclassified. What that means is you change the job description slightly. Jeff, here's the deal: we're not going to call you a talk show host anymore. We're going to call you a radio personality, and you're doing the same job. But this time, we're going to call you a radio personality. So here, we're going to give you a raise. And as long as it's under 10%, we don't have to go to the board and we don't have to get any approval for this. Now, MPS says, well, you know, we, we, we buried this. We, you know, we, we have the authority to do this. And, and this was included, you know, buried in the budget. And yes, we admit that we didn't call anybody's attention to it. And yes, we understand that the school board probably would have noticed this. But that's their problem, not ours. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I don't think there's any way you can look at what happened here and not come to the conclusion that the MPS superintendent was trying to pull a fast one on the public and on the school board. And this, I guess, has nothing to do with, you know, do these 23 people deserve a couple thousand dollars in raises or, or not? I, I, I don't think, I don't know enough about what they do to take a position on that one way or the other. I do know that the way they went about this stinks with a capital S. I mean, if you think somebody deserves a raise, what you should do is simply, you know, go to whoever has to approve these raises or submit a list saying, like, here's the list of employees that are getting raises and here's what they are. And you include it and you make it clear and everybody knows about it. Instead of this, gee, I want to see how I can funnel an extra six grand to my producer, Gru. So what we're going to do is we're going to change the job title, even though he's essentially doing the same thing, and we're going to give him that money. This, and I understand why, for example, the teachers are upset about it. Because even if the superintendent has the authority to do this, the way they did it was sneaky. The way they did it was hidden. Some school board members didn't even understand that this was going on. And, you know, if you think it's the right thing to do, be transparent about it. If you think there's some, for example, administrator that deserves a $17,000 raise, well, fine, just come out and say, hey, you know, this person's taking on all these extra duties. You know, I, I think they deserve a significant bump. Here, let's give them an extra seventeen grand. They deserve it. Okay, that's fine. Let it stand on its merits. This reminds me, in a way, of what happened at State Fair a few years ago under the previous leadership where you had the guy who, without telling the State Fair board, ended up giving raises to all sorts of people, including himself. Um, in this case, the situation, the superintendent given, didn't give a raise to herself, but gave raises to all these people, you know, out of a sort of a slush fund without letting the board know. Now, in this case, the board says they didn't know. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This whole thing stinks to high 
heaven. Jim in Milwaukee. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. Uh, I, uh, I certainly agree with your comments, and I just want to raise the point that the individual that received the $17,000 raise is making a boatload of money to start with. Because if seventeen thousand is less than ten percent, yeah, my goodness, we have pretty uh, well-paid administrators. Well, we we do I, I, exactly, and, and maybe whoever this is deserves the money. I mean, again, I I don't know. Maybe they've taken on all sorts of additional responsibilities. I don't. I, I have no position about that, but of course nobody knows, including the school board, didn't know because this was tucked in a budget item. And again, you play these games with reclassification of jobs. That's that's what I think is most appalling. Clearly, she did this, she being the MPS superintendent, did this because they didn't want people knowing about it. They tried to sneak it through, and it blew up in their face. Uh, well, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Uh, yep. It's a very sad situation, and I wish those folks were uh, held more accountable. Yeah, right. Right. Thanks for the call. And again, it, it's just it, this is to me what this really shows is again it, it shows the cavalier way that that people deal with public money. You could not get away with doing something like this in the private sector. I mean, I, I think about, you know, where, where we work here, you know, and I, and I know that, um, you know, people, people get raises. Well, all right, there is a, there is a budget and, you know, the management, you know, is told how much money they have to spend. And then I know how they have to account to upper management about how, okay, you know, we're going to give Jeff a little bit more money this year, or we're going to give, you know, grew a little bit more money this year. I mean, I, I, that's how this works. And especially aggravating, and I appreciate it from the perspective of the teachers' union, where the teachers' union is saying, "Hey, hey, look, you know, we're we're not getting raises. There's not that much money being spread around to all the different teachers, and here you're giving these administrators all this dough." The process is what is the problem. Let's see. Mike and Fond du Lac texts. I think it's absurd that the superintendent thought she could get away with this kind of activity. Can you provide some general description of what the administrators do? You know, what are some of the responsibilities? Well, here's what the MPS statement says. Um, The Office of Accountability and Efficiency identified 14 positions, and the Office of Human Resources identified nine positions. Out of the 23 positions, 16 fall within the purview of the superintendent. The remaining seven positions report directly to the Office of Board Governance. Um, That's all we know. And then again, again, board policy allows the administrator allows the head of MPS to provide salary increases under 10% that don't need to be reported to the school board as long as there is that reclassification. Here's what should happen. I mean, there's actually a simple way to deal with this now, and that is the school board's got to say, we're taking away your ability to give raises. You know, you cannot give raises anymore. All raises have to be run through us, and that's going to be more work for the school board. But when you have school administrators who are willing to do this and, uh, again, try to spend money in a way that is not transparent, this is what, you know, ends up having to happen. It's 1249. Big story number three is coming up. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. 1251. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As long as I'm being outraged about... Just the, the way taxpayer money gets thrown around. Uh, this story broke, actually, the Journal Sentinel's Dan Bice broke this um, while I was on vacation a couple weeks ago. But it, 
it's one of these stories that, again, as somebody who lives and has lived in Milwaukee County for a long time, it, it demonstrates what happens when you have politicians and other elected officials and bureaucrats who decide that they're going to look out for themselves and their cronies instead of the taxpayers. And and it's another one of these pension stories, in, in case you missed it. Um, of course, that you had the pension scandal in you know after the the turn of the the century that led to the resignation of Milwaukee County Executive Tom Ament and all, all that stuff. But it's it is just you still read some of these stories and it's mind boggling. There is a former assistant attorney. His name is David Robles. If you if you might be familiar with that name, it's because he's one of the guys that had his fingerprints all over the flawed the flawed and failed John Doe investigations. He's one of the guys that gets called out in the Attorney General's 91-page report. He'd been an assistant district attorney since 1982, all right? When he, he's just retired, he apparently retired a couple months ago. When he retired, he was making 122 grand, all right, which is, I mean, pretty good money for somebody, but he's, he'd been in the office for 30 years, 35 years. So, I mean, he was pretty much at the top of the pay scale. He's making 122 grand, pretty good, good money. And he'd probably been making good money for a lot of his career because of the pension scandal when Robles retired. And by the way, I don't fault him for taking the money when he retired. Hope you're sitting down. All right. This guy was an assistant district attorney, made six figures for a while. When he retired, the county taxpayers, through the pension scandal, because of the pension scandal, gave Robles a lump sum of $811,148. He got $811,000 and change in a payment. Now, you might say, okay, he worked for 35 years. All right, you know, you've got the pension thing that's there, eight hundred grand. All right, that sounds like a lot of money, but not necessarily over 35 years. It's fine. He earned it. Okay, fine. But but it doesn't end there. Because of the way this whole pensions thing was set up, Robles not only walks away with eight hundred and eleven grand in cash or you know check, he's also still going to be collecting over fifty nine thousand dollars a year, almost sixty grand, fifty nine thousand eight hundred and five dollars a year, you know, as part of the pension. Now, if his regular pension, for example, was sixty grand a year, I would think, okay, that you know that that's pretty nice. You know, not too many people in the private sector, unless you're in a union situation. Even then, not too many people have pensions anymore. But still, he he worked for thirty five years, sixty grand a year pension. He was making one hundred twenty two when he retired. Okay, that doesn't strike me as being out of the ordinary necessarily. But but when you put that on top of a payment of eight hundred and eleven thousand dollars lump sum, it shows how outrageous this entire thing has gotten. Again, I don't fault him for taking the money. If I had gone to work for the county in 1982 when I got out of law school and stayed there for 32, five years, and people were stupid enough or incompetent enough or corrupt enough or whatever to say to people in a situation like Robles is in, here, you know, take all this money, I would have taken the money. So I don't fault him. I don't fault the other county employees who are taking this. But I do say it is a clear example of just how screwed up things are and, frankly, I think in many respects continue to be 
in Milwaukee in particular, where you can have a county employee and, again, put aside what the job was and put aside, you know, how he spent the last couple of his year, years in his career, you know, with the John Doe stuff and all. I mean, where you can have a county employee walking away with 800 plus grand in a lump sum payment and then still being able to collect almost $60,000 a year. It's just... This, this whole thing with the pension scandal, with the incompetence of the county supervisors, with the incompetence or the corruption of the bureaucrats who put this thing together, it is absolutely disgusting. That's the only word you can use to look at how some of these long-term county employees are being able to cash in. And again, I don't fault them for being able to cash in and hop on the gravy train, but the truth of the matter is every one of these county employees that does this, and it's their right, and they get to do it because we had corrupt, incompetent bureaucrats and elected officials who set up a system that allowed them to do this. 800 plus grand plus $60,000 almost a year. It is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. And my concern is that this could happen again given what passes for oversights and checks of government around here. It is 1257. This is Jeff Wagner. Big story number three is coming up. If you can't make it at Brookfield Square, can you make it anywhere? Stick around. It's 109. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. Big story number three. If you can't make it at Brookfield Square, can you make it anywhere? I There um what always strikes me is how some shopping malls, and I understand it's a tough time for shopping malls with all the specialty stores that are out there nowadays and with all the people buying stuff over the Internet. I, I get that. But um, whenever I hear about the demise of shopping malls, I always I always think about every time I go to Brookfield Square, and it seems like the place is always packed, and I'm always circling around trying to find a parking space because – Candidly, there's a lot of stuff in Brookfield Square. They've got the big stores that you want to go to. They've also got, you know, a number of restaurants. They've got some small specialty stores. They've got stores around the outside and restaurants that you want to go to. I mean, Brookfield Square, to me, is an example of a successful, thriving shopping center. If you missed it yesterday, Sears announces that they are going to be closing um, another 39 Sears stores by early April. Um, they closed over 400 locations in the last year. That would be Sears stores and Kmart stores, leaving them with 875 stores. And they announced that by early April, they're going to be closing another 39 Sears stores and another 64 Kmart stores. So blue light specials are going to be tougher to find. Um, two of the, so as far, as far as I know, none of the Kmart stores remaining in Wisconsin are scheduled to be closed this time around. But the two Sears stores that were targeted um, in Wisconsin is the Sears store at Brookfield Square and the Sears store in the uh, Plaza Shopping Center up in, in Green Bay both of which are, are going to be gone. Now, it's no surprise, I guess, that the Sears store in Brookfield Square is going. Uh, this The handwriting has been on the wall for a while, and Brookfield Square has already, I think, been looking at, you know, what, what can they do to replace this space? And they're, I think, looking at some major major league reconstruction of this, um, you know, helping to develop that site and looking at maybe a movie theater and a bowling alley and, and things like that, turning it more into an entertainment option as opposed to a, a shopping sort of thing. But, but the Sears is going away because it's failing. 
it's failing at Brookfield Square. Now, I, I whenever I, I think about what is happening at Sears, and this is, of course, you know, the Sears at Bayshore Town Center. I mean, I we moved here when I was 10 years old, right, from the East Coast. And I remember, I mean, back back in the day, Sears was the big thing. I mean, I, I grew up in Glendale. You always had that Sears store at Bayshore Shopping Center. I mean, I remember when Bayshore was just, it was a strip mall, essentially, you know, an L-shaped strip mall before it became a, a, a an L-shaped shopping center, but before it became like the enclosed mall. And it was always anchored. You, you had that Sears store that was there. That Sears store went away, what, last year, and now they're, you know, looking at putting other things in there. The, I swear, when we first moved here, the place you went to shop was the Sears store on North Avenue. Now, I understand I'm dating myself, but it was, I want to say it was like seven or eight stories tall, and it was, I mean, the quintessential department store. If you couldn't find anything anywhere else, you ended up going to the Sears store on North Avenue. Well, that one's long gone, and more and more Sears stores are are disappearing as well. This is big story number three, 414-799-1620. Five years from now, will there still be a Sears? Will there still be a Kmart? I think Kmart is perhaps even in more precarious position than Sears' stores are. But if you think back, especially if you are of a certain age, Sears really was where America shopped. And that Sears catalog that came out every year, that was a big deal. Now, they're, they're, they're going. And the Sears store in Brookfield Square, like I say, you have a thriving mall like Brookfield Square, and Sears can't make it there. That tells me they couldn't make it at Bayshore. Um, you see these Sears stores closing all across the country. It tells me that I understand tastes change. I don't think department stores are going to go away, but I think within the next five years, I would not be surprised if Sears goes away entirely. They're already starting to sell off a lot of their brands um, to allow stuff like the, the, the craftsman tools and stuff to be sold by different places. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is Sears going to be a dinosaur? And if so, what happened? Was it, was it just the Internet? Um, because you could say yes. But there are other sort of similar type of stores. There are the the Costco's. There's the Walmart's. There's the Target stores. There's the other types of department stores that aren't taking it as hard as Sears did. What happened? And will it be turned around? 414-799-1620. I mean, I hate to say this. I take no pleasure in that. I take no pleasure in seeing people lose their jobs and stores close. But the truth of the matter is, I think Sears is that dinosaur wrestling around in the tar pit. And I think they're going to be history in the next five years. 414-799-1620. Big story number three. The Sears at Brookfield Square and the Sears up in Green Bay in the Green Bay Plaza closing. What happened? It's 115. This is Jeff Wagner. We're back with your calls in just a minute. It's 118. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Candidates are being interviewed in Titletown for the general manager position. How soon can you expect a decision on the new GM? John and Melissa have the latest from inside Lambeau. That is 310 this afternoon. Tune in on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, if you missed the news yesterday, Sears announced that they're going to be closing another 103 stores. And Sears and Kmart are the same company. Um, 
two of the Sears stores that are going to be closing. One is in Green Bay and one is at Brookfield Square. Now, this has been rumored for a while, but the question becomes, you know, five years from now, is there going to be a Sears? And my answer is, I don't think so. And I'm not proud to say that, by the way. I'm not happy about that. But I just think for a variety of reasons, Sears has not adapted and it's unfortunate, but it was where America shopped, but not anymore. Bob in Menominee Falls. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, I spent 42 years in management with uh, Kmart stores and uh, nine different stores in Milwaukee. And during the glory years, we had like 15 of them in Milwaukee. Right. We have one left now down in Cudahy and one in Oconomowoc. Biggest problem I know was when uh, we did not keep up with our infrastructure as far as Updating buildings, technology. Mm-hmm. We used registers that went down all the time during the Christmas holiday. It was nothing worse than having 30 people in a line and all the registers would crash. <laughs> um, yeah. When Eddie, Lamp- when Eddie Lampert took over, uh, he knew what he was doing. He was a retail, a re- uh, a, he was a real estate man, not a retail man. He knew that he was going to have a lot of money coming out of this with the sale of all the buildings and all that make a ton of money selling a building rather than waiting for it to make any profit. So that's what's happening right now. He's he's going to come out of the snow like a rose when he's all done. And Kmart will be gone probably in two to, and series in two to three years at most, I predict. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting because I can remember, you know, Sears, I, you know, Kmart to me was always Target, you know, Walmart, um, you know, Kmart was that type of competitor. And that, that's kind of the price point. That's what struck me. You know, and Sears was more along the lines of say like a Boston store or something like that but you're you're right the 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 infrastructure was allowed to deteriorate i guess and it's just i, I just i mean I, I thought Kmart's I just I stopped going to Kmart's. I used to go to Kmart's in the 70s and 80s and I just I guess I just felt that you know Target kind of passed them by somewhere along the way well, you know, we, we taught Walmart everything there is to know about discount retailing, and uh, along the path, we forgot to look over our shoulders and saw this W coming up from Bensonville, Arkansas, yeah. and we just let it go right by us like the space shuttle, and all of a sudden, you know, they, they are now right up there on number one, and we just never followed them and just never pursued the uh, uh, up, in updating and stuff, and, and it was just terrible, so I... I got my 42 years, and I'm glad I was able to get out three years ago when I did. And my grandkids will never know what a Kmart looked like. <laughs> so, th- so they're down. There's only two in southeastern Wisconsin left, huh? Cudahy and Oconomowoc are what we'd call the Greater Milwaukee area. Uh, that's really about it. There, there were 15 when I sure. started in 1972. Interesting. Now, th- I mean, I always remember the one I would go to was um, 76 and Good Hope. That was the one I used to go to a lot. Yeah. I ran that one as well. Okay. Now, thank, it, thanks for no, when I was in, now, thanks for when I when I was in law school, I lived off of sixtieth in Good Hope and we used to I can remember uh, this is embarrassing. I can remember you know, when I was a starving law school student. You know, you could go over like fifteen minutes before closing and, and they'd have like discounts on the food. You know, they'd have like the hot dogs and stuff that they'd made up that the, the store was closing and so they'd be selling them off for like practically nothing. That's okay. I ate those hot dogs. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to uh let's see, Bob. Bob in Waukesha. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bob. Hi. I was in the, the uh, Brooklyn Square uh, Sears about six months ago to buy a battery, and it was very difficult to find a salesperson. Right. In the glory years, you go into the appliance department, and they were fighting over you. There'd be five or six uh, employees there to help you. Right. Many in the tool department, but the, it was like a ghost town. And when I finally did locate a salesperson, it was like they couldn't care less if they sold you the item or not. Mm-hmm. It took it a long time to check out. And I just think that uh, with today's shortage of people that want to work, it's very difficult to find good employees. And people that have the 
the company, uh, you know, at heart. Right. Uh, people are just doing a job. Right. And I think that's what uh, has been a big device for Sears at Kmart. You know, it's it's interesting you should talk about the, the problems with checking out. My wife and I, I'm, I'm going to say, we went into a Boston store, and I won't say which Boston store it was, but, you know, she wanted to buy, we were going to, we were going to a party or an event or something, and she wanted to buy a scarf or a sweater or a top or something like that. And um, this was just, it was a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, so she finds what she wants. It, it We were in line, it, it, it took us literally 15 or 20 minutes to check out because, you know, th- there were so few sales clerks that were there and they had so few registers that were open and it's not a, there wasn't a centralized place that you go, you know, and stand in line with the cashiers and, and you're wandering around looking for some place to pay for what you want to pay. And if it had been me, I would have said to heck with it and walked out, you know, but, but that's, that's right. the thing, you know, it, it's, it's that frustration that's there. It's like, Hey, I want to spend my money here. Give me somebody that can take it for goodness sakes. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, with the government trying to increase the number of jobs, it's not the jobs that are the problem. It's the people that want to work. Yeah. No, thanks for talking. And again, and I, I understand that I, I also get that from the retailer's perspective, you're – you know, you're, you're being pinched on prices. Um, you know, you've got the Internet that's out there, and lots and lots of people are ordering from that. But, you know, the, at the same time, if you've got people, like, that are in the store that want to spend money, you want to make sure it's going to be easy for them to get out. Uh, let's see. Chris writes, we live in Elkhorn, and our family shops in Brookfield. We have noticed a consistent decline in the way the Sears store was managed. Poor layout, no investment in the appearance of the store. I was also at the Sears Bayshore about five years ago. It looked like a glorified rummage sale. It's like Sears rested on its past glory and just stopped being innovative. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, I, I mean, from a clothing perspective, I don't know. I don't know. Were people still buying clothing at Sears, or would you go to if you were at that? Would you be going to Target, or would you be going to what I would perceive to be a little bit of the higher end type of stuff? I mean, Sears, you know, and and then they're starting to like sell off the appliance lines and the Craftsman tool lines and all these things. Deb in West Bend. Deb, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Deb. Um, I've got so many stories to tell you, but yeah, I was in retail for 28 years. I was J.C. Penney a store. I worked in the catalog center in um, Burley, like, and I loved it. The catalog orders, uh, Walmart, Human Resources, um, you name it, I've been there, Sears. And, you know, I saw so many changes coming, but you couldn't put your finger on it. One thing I noticed right away with Sears was, just like you said, years ago my husband bought every tool, and you know, all the right. craftsmen, but you couldn't find a person to wait on you. And that it was quite a few years ago, and they were cutting payroll. And it is today, this now, why they're doing this now is cutting payroll. You do not get the customer service. Right. Because you can't find anybody to help you. And I noticed that with the younger generation, especially when I was at Walmart after Sam Walton died, uh, new ones came in at the board. They changed everything. You were just a, you were a number. You weren't a person. And they didn't care about things. And it's all showing up now. Mm-hmm. Now they're all self-serve registers. You can't, you cannot get personal service. Right. And that's, I mean, thanks for calling, Devin. And that's, that's a big deal. It's why, it's why there will always be a market, for example, for, the local hardware stores. There's a couple, I mean, I'll give them a free plug. There's a couple of Ace hardware stores that I go to. I am, look, when, when I try to do home improvements or buy stuff, I'm, I'm dangerous. I, I am. But, I mean, you, you go in, I, will, I am willing to pay extra 
to go into, for example, a locally owned hardware store where there's a bunch of employees and there I can say, hey, I need this piece of weather stripping or I need this floor mat or I need this cord or whatever. And the person, number one, knows whether they have it or not. And number two will not only tell me it's aisle eight, but they'll walk with me to aisle eight and we'll go down and they'll look through all the different things of weather stripping and they'll say, gee, I'm sorry, we don't have one. We don't have this particular one, but you can try somewhere else. That, that's that's the type of service. And see, that's what I think people end up wanting. Eddie from Franklin Tech. Sears had an image problem, and I believe millennials looked at those stores as a place their parents used to shop. That's probably true, too. It's a shame because Sears had such great products like Die Hard Batteries, Kenmore, Craftsman, Weatherbeater Paint, all those different things. Bottom line is uh, the Sears at Brookfield Square – I think – what does the story say? I think the story says they're planning to go out of business um, mid-March. So I would expect that there might be some might be some going out of business sales out there. But the, the bigger story is this is the demise of this particular brand. And I think our, our first caller, the guy who worked for Kmart for 42 years, is absolutely right. I think um, you know, his grandchildren are going to say, Kmart, what exactly was that? And they might say the same thing about Sears. It's 127. This is Jeff Wagner coming up in just a couple minutes. The governor is doing the right thing. Will the judges help out? Stick around. 134, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Dow Jones crossed 25,000 for the first time ever. What does it mean for your 401k and for the rest of 2018? Find out today at 434 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Matter of fact, another big day in the stock market. Uh, Dow Jones up 140 points as of this moment. Um, the NASDAQ up 46. And actually, percentage-wise, that's a, that's a higher number. Uh, that's a higher percent than the Dow increase. Uh, the NASDAQ has been on a tear as well. And a lot of people know we focus on the Dow, but a lot of people... 401ks and a lot of the big companies, they, uh, a lot of them, you know, have investments. A lot of the mutual fund investments, you know, are invested heavily in the Nasdaq as well. So all that stuff is taking off. Hey, just a note to kind of wrap up our our Sears conversation. A text here, Jeff. I agree with you on the local hardware stores. One hundred percent personal service says a lot. That 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 is why. See, for, for everybody who talks about the effect that the Internet's going to have on consumer choices, and it does, there's always going to be that spot for personal service. And, I mean, I just – the hardware store is the classic example of that. Um, I just – okay, we're, we're in the process of moving into this, this new house. And upstairs bathroom, there was a recessed light in the shower that was – burned out and the the thing that held it in was it, it kind of come apart so again i'm dangerous when it comes to home improvement but my mission was find a replacement for that so i, I go down to the local hardware store not to the big box i could have gone to like the big box store and i've been wandering around for an hour and i would come back with the wrong thing i, I walk into the local hardware store and i show the guy the three pieces i have and he says yeah we've got this but let me show you there's something new that's out there that works better and, you know, it's it's going to be easier for you to put in. So he walks me to this aisle. He shows me this thing. I said, oh, so all I have to do is just kind of screw this in as opposed to doing it. I said, yeah, absolutely. All right, sold. And so I'm back there. And I was actually even able to st- install it. But it, it's that if I, I wouldn't have known about that if I hadn't have gone into the local hardware store. And it's why that is always, always, always going to be a niche. All right. During the show yesterday, um, there was the breaking news that, that Governor Walker had announced that he wanted to close 
Lincoln Hills, which is the the juvenile prison in the state. Now, um, what happened is about five or six years ago, the the state and, and Governor Walker signed off on this. We had a handful of juvenile prisons. They don't like to say juvenile prisons, but they're juvenile prisons. We we had them across the state. Uh, Ethan Allen in Wales was one. And, and what we decided to do is close those various juvenile prisons in favor of sending everybody uh, that, that goes to all the juveniles that go to prison, um, to the juvenile facility. They, they'd all go to one at Lincoln Hills, which is north of, of Wausau. All right. Well, over the last several years, there have been problems at, at Lincoln Hills. Now, I think... I think some of the analysis misreads the problem. To me, the biggest problem at Lincoln Hills is the fact that you have very, very, very dangerous people who are being sent there. You have some people who have this idealized notion that the 15 and 16-year-olds who are going to the facility well, it, it, this is back in the father knows best and the make room for daddy era where they're not really bad people. Well, the truth of the matter is that they are. That the truth of the matter is we have the in order to go to a juvenile facility, you've got to be the worst of the worst. Juvenile judges bend over backwards and then do flips to try to avoid sending people to juvenile prisons. In order to get your butt thrown into a juvenile prison, you have to do something really, really bad, or you have to do a lot of simply bad stuff over and over again. It's the worst of the worst that gets sent to these facilities. So what happens is you have the worst of the worst going into these facilities, and then they act out like the worst of the worst. And, you know, the prison guards have to respond to this. You know, they're being attacked. They're being assaulted by 15- and 16-year-olds. You have some of the female guards. You have female instructors who are being attacked. That the, the males are exposing themselves and doing, you don't even want to know what they do in front of these guards and in front of these, you know, know uh like the the people who's trying to teach them and try to rehabilitate them and then you've got like federal judges that have never spent any significant time in a prison much less a juvenile prison who say oh we're, we're using restraints on these kids well you're damn right they're using restraints on the kids they're using restraints on the kids because they need to protect themselves oh you use pepper spray on the kid yeah you use pepper spray he was attacking somebody but you got federal judges who have no clue about what goes on there who say okay well we're going to put injunctions on we're going to limit your ability to use discipline and as a result, you know, you really do literally have the inmates that run the asylum slash prison. And it's it's out of control, and it's been out of control for a, a while. So what the governor announced yesterday he wanted to do, and this actually, for a variety of reasons, has the blessing of both, I, I think, Democrats and Republicans. He said, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to close Lincoln Hills as a juvenile facility. We're going to use it as an adult prison because we need space for people. So we're going to have it as an adult prison. And what we're going to do is we're going to open up. We're going to go back to what we had before. We're going to open up six juvenile prisons, correctional facilities, across the state. Um, And the plan is to put three in southeastern Wisconsin, including one in Milwaukee County, because the reality is, 
the vast majority of the inmates, the people that get sent to Lincoln Hills, come out of Milwaukee or certainly come out of southeastern Wisconsin. So the idea is if we can keep people closer to home, well, that might be better. Now, the reason a lot of these juvenile thugs or juvenile thugs is because they don't have anybody in their life that want. There's no parental input. The parents don't care about them. There's nobody watching them. But to the extent that there might be somebody that cares about them, it's easier to go visit somebody, I don't know, if you're doing time in Milwaukee County than it is to figure out how you can get up to you know Lincoln Hills north of Wausau. So the idea is let's have smaller facilities, but let's have them closer to home. I think this is an absolutely tremendous idea. I I, I think it is. Now, do I want to have the juvenile prison in my backyard? No, I I don't. And you know that that's going to be a fight once they try to decide where they're going to put these facilities because keep in mind that the type of people going to them is not going to be different. It's still going to be the worst of the worst. And I'm not sure, for example, you know where you're going to be able to locate them. Apparently, uh, Ethan Allen, at least so far, Reopening that is not under consideration, so these will be new places. But but here's the bottom line of all this. It, it doesn't work unless, unless judges are willing to send these kids to prison. I, I mean, right now there is a, a reluctance. Number one, to send these kids to prison because, oh, they're just juveniles. They're just poorly misunderstood. Now, that's gotten even more emphatic because you have some judges who are now justifying their decisions not to send people to Lincoln Hills because, well, okay, this is a bad facility and they're restraining people and they're using pepper spray and they're, it's a dangerous facility. Yeah, it, it is all that stuff. So this only works if you have judges that are willing to say, all right, now that this is closer to home, we're going to still, you know, we're, we're going to be willing to send people to prison. 414-799-1620. And I guess I have a two-part question. Is this a good idea? And my answer to that is yes. And then, given the fact that you're going to have smaller facilities closer to home, should this make judges more willing to be able to send people who deserve it to these juvenile facilities to get them off the street to protect the public? And my answer to that question is, I don't know, but I sure hope so. 414-799-1620. But I will say, I, I think this move to close Lincoln Hills or convert it to an adult prison and go back to the more regional facilities is a good idea. Let's start with Kevin in Milwaukee. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hey, when they were trying to decide between closing Lincoln Hills and Ethan Allen, there was a multidisciplinary task force that of judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys and social workers, all of whom reported back to the governor to close Lincoln Hills because of every. It's basically predicted what has yeah. come to pass: lack of staff. Yep. Um, it's a remoteness. Yeah, exactly. It's, oh, it's yeah. too remote for families to participate for whatever good that will do. Um, Everything that that report predicted has come to pass. But it's it's really a good idea to close that place. It's and as far as judges, if I were a judge, I I wouldn't send kids there except for the very very worst because they're going to come out worse than when you send them up. So I think that closing it and opening up facilities back closer would be good. And I do think the judges would be more willing to send some of the 
kids who haven't offended to the maximum because mm-hmm. <sighs> right no i i agree i i, I kevin i th- i agree I, I look this was an it was a mistake okay i i understand why this was done six years ago. Okay, I, I get it. it. Makes sense. Okay, let's consolidate this. We can save a little bit of money. We can do all these type of things. It didn't work. It, it just it, it didn't work. And and part of that I think was because we we didn't quite pick up on. And maybe people should have. We didn't p- quite pick up on the explosion in juvenile crime that we were going to see. And, and juvenile crime has exploded over the last five or, or six years. And we didn't, I think, anticipate, maybe we should have, people did not anticipate that the type of people, not just the explosion of juvenile crime, but the type of juveniles that were going to be coming into this, into the system. And so you have that. For all the various factors, I, it was well-intentioned. It was a mistake. So one of the things I give people credit for is coming out and saying, all right, we did this. We tried it. It, it hasn't worked. I hope, though, judges do take advantage of of this, as that um, I think we I I think I hope judges do take advantage of this and come to the conclusion and say, all right, now now this is closer to home. All right, now we can we can monitor what's going on. Now the public can see what's happening, and and we can we can do this. And I think it's great that you're going to have a facility. You should have a facility in Milwaukee County. You, you should have a couple in southeastern Wisconsin because if that's where the kids are committing the crimes, um, we shouldn't send them to the other end of the state. They should be around here, and then people can see and judge you know, whether or not they're getting the treatment they need or whether or not you know, the, the judges are doing their jobs. 414-799-1620. We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 146. 148, Jeff Brackner, WTMJ. I think this is a text. I think this is a great plan. I hope that the local judges will send more of the dangerous criminal youth to these much more nearby facilities versus just one or two distant ones. All right, now if the governor, and by the way, the governor does have a sense of humor, but if the governor really wanted to get a conversation started, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, as they're trying to figure out a place, let, let's say, for the sake of argument, that you, you that we agree that you're going to have one of these facilities, and it's best to have it close to, reasonably close to where a lot of the crime is being committed. So let's say, you know, since we have a huge problem with juvenile crime in Milwaukee County, that that one of these types of facilities should be in Milwaukee County. All right. Hmm. All right. Let's try to think of a place. All right. It would have to be a place that, you know, is accessible by public transportation so people could come and, and visit. A place where... There, there's lots of space, preferably like lots of vacant space, so you don't necessarily have to rebuild. Um, places where, I don't know, there, there's really not an ongoing redevelopment plan. I mean, obviously, you don't want to take one of these facilities and say, okay, this is going to be, you know, we've got this land that's going to be the, this prime prime place. I mean, you're not going to put a juvenile prison right next to the Bucks Arena, I, I don't think. You know, so you, you're trying to figure out a place. Where in Milwaukee County could you have a place that has all this vacant space that might be close to transportation but unused space that's been sitting around for a while? One word. Northridge. <laughs> Northridge. I'm just throwing this out there. I mean, if you're looking for different places and you're looking for something, maybe, maybe, maybe Northridge. You know, nobody can figure out what to do with it. There's been one plan after another. Maybe maybe a youth correctional facility 
out out at Northridge would be at least it would be a use of this. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Craig and Lowell. Craig, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey Jeff. Hi, Craig. Uh, well, I can't help you with the local place. Northridge sounds great. <laughs> but my, if if I were a politician, what I would do is we're always looking for something to do with our veterans and how to help them out. Why not use military bases, for instance, in Wisconsin, Fort McCoy, and soldiers that are getting ready to end their time in service, allow them to get skills as prison guards, educators, uh, counselors, and, you know, you'd have a wide variety. You'd have soldiers from huh. around the United States that could, you know, use their skills and, and be ready for some real-world experience once they end their time in service. Or get or get some training. Now, thanks for, I mean, I, I think, you know, you'd probably, as a practical matter, you'd probably have issues with the federal government and trying to use, you know, federal bases and things like that. But I, I, I do think you kind of need to, to to think outside of, of the box and, um, I actually, I, I think I could actually easily see Governor Walker saying, "All right, I've been getting all this criticism by the like turn them loose Milwaukee County judges who are appalled at uh, appalled at this." All right, well, you want a facility closer to home? Fine. I think Northridge, um, you know, has has that spot. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I'm there. I'm. I'm a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not completely. Actually, our text line is exploding with people saying, yeah, Northridge would be ideal, um, except somebody who correctly points out the trolley won't go to Northridge. Yeah, that's true. Um, let's see. Let's talk to Mike in Sheboygan. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Good. What do you think? you got to look at the – now, I spent over 20 years in law enforcement and been an academy instructor, a collegiate instructor, and I also worked for the courts in Florida before moving back to Wisconsin. I specialize in juvenile issues. And putting a Band-Aid on, on a bad situation by saying, let's go ahead and move the correctional facility from Lincoln Hills and establish local facilities still doesn't address the problem. It's a systemic problem from the top down. You have judges that don't want a sentence because – they look at the problem as 20, 30 years ago, yep. where it's a social issue. It's a, it's a parent, it's a school, it's society is bad and is getting these kids, so let's help them and fix them. And now the kids look at it and go, wait a minute, there's no consequence. When you look in Milwaukee and you see the kids have been arrested for six auto thefts, right. eight auto burglaries, and five carjackings and gets probation, there's no consequence. So why would crime be reduced? Answer is it wouldn't. At some point, now you incarcerate the kids, and people jump on the bandwagon and go, oh, my goodness, incarceration, this is terrible. We're locking these kids up. If you look at the state of Indiana and what they did, they revamped their system from the top down. And the judges now, when they sentence the kids, one of the main institutions that they have there is Pendleton. And at Pendleton, when you get sentenced there, you have to meet certain benchmarks as a juvenile to get released. Example. If you have anger management issues, you have to complete anger management and behavioral training. If you're lacking in education, before you can get released and get probation or go home, right. you have to achieve certain grade levels or certain levels of education. Or get your GED or whatever, yeah. Exactly. Sure. Or you're not getting out. They could keep you from 15 to 18. And by creating that education, by creating that job training, but also by saying, look, you committed crime, we're going to keep you here. It's not going to be a pleasant experience. Now, if you meet these benchmarks and change your behavior and the things we're doing, we'll release you. It changes system-wide. Judges are willing to send. And where you put the correctional facilities 
have a better chance of working. But right now, the judges aren't changing. The juvenile system isn't changing. It's a politician just saying, well, we have these remote areas, and these remote areas are making it difficult. So people are revolting. Instead of trying to change their behavior or, as adequately put in common parlance, punishing them for revolting against the location that they're at, we're going to reward them. We'll move them closer to home. We'll let them have visits. We'll let them have friends come. We'll let them be in a familiar environment. That doesn't create an environment for somebody that has already stepped outside the norms of society to go ahead and change their behavior. And and see, Mike, I I couldn't agree with you more um, as to your basic premise about how we're 20 or 30 years behind when it comes to dealing with juveniles. And if you're a regular listener's program, you know that's something I preach about all the time, this idea that we have this kind of Norman Rockwell belief as to what it is that, and who it is that's committing the, these crimes. And you have a lot of these very liberal judges who are, they, they, they hate the word mass incarceration. Oh, we just can't lock up these people. Well, yeah, you can. You know, and, and you're exactly right. If you have somebody that's got, okay, fingerprints on 20 stolen cars, all right, been through the system two or three times before, sending that child back or sending that perpetrator back out into the community or back into the same environment that hasn't stopped him from stealing cars in the first place, well, he's going to continue to steal cars. So I, I'm with you. I think the entire system needs to be revamped. It starts, um, I think this is a start. I think it then you move to the legislature. I, I think you need to, I think there needs to be mandatory penalties for certain crimes. I think in addition, this idea that we keep, and I've preached about this for a while now, I think this idea that juvenile records are secret or you don't know how juvenile cases are disposed of, I think that's ridiculous. If the kid next door to you, 16 years old, is in juvenile court and has stolen 20 cars, I think the public should know that. I mean, I think you as a member of the community have the right to know that the kid living next door to you is a car thief who's now been, and I think dispositions should be, uh, again, be known as well. If a juvenile judge takes this kid that's stolen 30 cars, um, and this is his third or fourth time through the system, and puts him back out on the street, I think people have a right to know that. And maybe that'll put pressure on the courts to open, operate with more transparency and not be as soft on juvenile crime as they are. But at the very least, it gives people in the neighborhood the right to know, hey, I'm living next door to this kid who's, I don't know, beaten up people and mugged people and gotten put in the juvenile court system and sent back again. At least it will give you an opportunity to protect yourself. So I agree with you that you have to have a whole revamp of the system. But I think this is, I think this is an interesting start and, I don't know. Wouldn't it be interesting when the locations kind of come out? Huh. We haven't been able to figure out what to do with Northridge. Maybe this is an idea. It's 157. 209. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Eric, do you think we should tell somebody that that big sign just came, like, falling down when somebody closed the door? Well, no. Gru just put it back up. It looks nice. <laughs> yeah, but, right. For, for people who don't know, we dur- during the middle of Eric's news, <laughs> all of a sudden, fine. there's this <clears throat> huge thump. That we sitting in our soundproof booth, in our soundproof studio, can hear because there's this big sign right behind where, where Gru, our producer, sits. And um, it, it's it's resting on a couple nails, apparently. And when somebody, like, shut a door, the thing goes falling off. And so we, we've now solved this by just simply putting yes. it up. But no, no one was hurt. <laughs> it looks fine. Well, no, I think I, we're good. Okay, but again, my... Maybe this is just me saying, all right, if it if it came down when somebody shut the door and we've put it up in the same, we've re-put it up in the same fashion that it was up 
before next time somebody shuts the door, it's going to come falling down again, right? Or is that just me? Uh, maybe. Right. That's an All interesting right. thesis. But it's not our problem, right? So, okay. So, group, just put on a – life is tough, pal. Get a helmet and move on from there. Just just saying. You just never know. This is kind of the look at the behind-the-scenes stuff that's uh, going on here. Hey, uh, David Clark, back in back in the news. I mean, he, he's been gone as sheriff for a while, but it just here, – here's the latest story. Um there was, if you recall, back when he was sheriff, there was the flap, for want of a better phrase, last January. He's on a flight from Dallas to Milwaukee. There's this guy who sees Clark wearing a Dallas cowboy outfit and asks if he was David Clark. Clark says he was. Then the guy shakes his head and walks away to his seat in coach. When the plane landed in Milwaukee, the guy is greeted by six sheriff deputies. You remember all that story. Okay, the the man who uh, had to deal with the sheriff's deputies, in addition to getting his 15 minutes of fame, hires a lawyer, and they file a lawsuit in federal court against David Clark, various deputies in Milwaukee County. All right, that's It's like we've got to sue about everything nowadays. And I think I said at the time that while I, I think the sheriff was wrong in you know having this guy jacked up, essentially, for looking at him crosswise, th- did that really rise to the level of a federal civil rights lawsuit? I mean, seriously, do we have to sue about everything nowadays? Um uh, the guy apparently later posted on social media about the incident, uh, filed a complaint with the county. Clark responded on social media by calling Black a, a the guy's name is Black by calling him a, a snowflake. <laughs> the post read, "Cheer up, snowflake! If Sheriff Clark were to really harass you, you wouldn't be around to whine about it." Okay, um, really? Okay. So in any event, the reason this is back in the news is a federal judge, Judge J.P. Stadmiller who I have known since I started practicing law. Judge Stadmiller, before he was a judge, was the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. He hired me right out of law school. So Joe and I go back a long time. Federal judge on Friday, this is the way the Journal Sentinel reports it, dismissed most of the civil rights lawsuit against David Clark over this incident. There was one claim that he allowed to... uh, Moved to trial. Um, trial scheduled for January 26th. Most of the claims got rejected. Um, he did allow, the judge did allow a claim that Clark retaliated on Facebook for the guy's exercise of his First Amendment right to shake his head at Clark. That survives, now set for trial on January uh, 22nd. Um, but all the other stuff gets kicked out. So I'd, I'd have to read the opinion to have a position. But I, I do kind of. And this is not seen and shouldn't be seen as a defense of some of the stuff and the antics that David Clark pulled in the last year or so that he was in office. But I'm like, all right, I remember hearing this and thinking, okay, is this really the stuff that people are running to court and suing over? Um, Boorish behavior, yeah, but really a violation of civil rights. And you can read the opinion. The Journal Sentinel's got a link to it. Okay, I, I I want to talk about a story out of Madison. But to me, this underscores how difficult it ever is to save taxpayer money. We've seen this happen in Milwaukee a couple times over the years when it comes to post offices, right? People don't go to the post office as much as they used to. That's just one of the effects of of the Internet. 
Um, people don't buy as many stamps as they used to. People don't because you've got things like UPS and FedEx and all the other courier services. You know, it used to be that the postal service was pretty much it if you wanted to ship packages. So business at post offices declines. So what over the years they tried to do is they tried to consolidate post offices. If you have two post offices within, I don't know, two or three miles of each other, and they're both underperforming. If this was, if this was a real business, you know, what, what would you do? Well, okay, so if you ran two gas stations, you grew who was producing the show, you were the owner of two gas stations within two miles of each other, and both of them were underperforming. What might you do? You might, in all likelihood, you would say, well, okay, I'm not going to continue to operate two underperforming gas stations. What I'm going to do is I'm going to close one of them, and then we'll just have one. We'll have the one gas station, and then that'll get the business. That's what you would do. Well, that's not the way it works in government. When the post office tries to, for example, you remember this has happened in Milwaukee, when they try to consolidate, they say, you know, we've got too many post offices. What we'll do is we'll close one. Then you had the mayor and you had the Congress people and all that. This is terrible. It's going to be discriminatory. It's going to make people have to walk a little bit further. You know, it's going to mean people are going to have to stay on the bus a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, it did. But that's just what, what happens as a result of changes in people's tastes and the effort to consolidate and things like that. Well, this is playing out in Madison right now. They have two DMVs, you know, two Department of Motor Vehicles. One is off of Sheboygan Avenue and one is off of Odana Road in Madison. They've got two DMVs, all right, and, and what they're in older buildings, and what they're they're doing, what the Wisconsin Department of Motor Vehicles says is, hey, look, here's the deal. We, we've got this new building on Excelsior Drive. It, it's, on, it's on a bus line. Now, admittedly, right now, there's not as many buses that go past this building right now as there are that go past these other DMV locations. But what we're going to do is we think it makes more sense to close down these two DMVs and consolidate them in this one new building. And we think we're going to be able to save money and we think it's going to be ultimately more more efficient. All right. Now that's the type of thing that you would think people would be applauded for, but not out in Madison. Now the mayor of Madison and a couple of the other politicians, they have now filed a civil rights complaint against the DMV, alleging that the decision to close these two DMV offices um, in favor of the new service center um, adversely affects communities of color and people with disabilities because they're going to have to travel a little bit farther to go to the DMV. And... Of course, you, you know nowadays that because all the lefties in Madison hate voter ID, this is now turned into a, is this an effort to, again, hurt people from being able to vote? Because, you know, if you need one of those voter, voter IDs, you've got to go into the DMV office. So if it's harder to get or you've got to go a little bit further to go to this new DMV office, well, there is this all this plot to try to disenfranchise um, people from you know going to the DMV 
All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I swear this is the type of stuff that makes my head explode. That This idea that, all right, we, we've got redundant or underperforming field offices, etc. So what we're going to do is we're going to close them and we're going to consolidate them. And, yes, it, it's true that, you know, if somebody is taking what, – what, what actually the DMV people say is that the vast majority of people who come to the DMV drive here. I mean, that's, that's typically why you're going to the Department of Motor Vehicles. And this location that we have, this new facility, it's closer to the Beltline. It's actually going to be more convenient – for most of the people who are using it, because, again, if you're going to the Department of Motor Vehicles, the vast majority of people who are going there, it's because they've got driver's licenses. They are going there to deal with issues regarding registration of their vehicles. But it is, admittedly, a little bit harder, at least right now, or a little bit of a longer bus ride if you are taking public transportation. Is that a violation of civil rights? 414-799-1620. My answer would be, give me a break. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 220. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 222, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I admit, stories like this make me absolutely crazy. All right, they've got two underperforming Department of Motor Vehicle offices in Madison. What they're going to do is they want, they've already, they're going to close these two and they're opening a new one right off of, of the Beltline, um, because they think it's actually going to be more accessible. City of Madison filing a federal civil rights lawsuit. Uh, against the Department of Motor Vehicles. This is what they argue. The decision to combine and move the Westside DMV service centers to an area that is relatively inaccessible by transit. Okay, now that's not talking about cars. That's talking about bus lines and things like that. Disparately, disparately impacts racial minority residents who rely primarily on transit to reach the DMV for services. Well, of course, all right, most people, again, let's start with the basic premise. Most people that are going to the DMV are going there because they have issues with their automobiles, right? Right? I, I mean, that's that's one of the things that ends up going on there. So, yes, you've got to ride the bus. I appreciate that. You might have to ride the bus a little bit longer. Then, of course, you've got the people in Madison who tie this all into the whole voter ID thing. Well, if you don't have one of these voter IDs, you've got to go to the DMV. And here, if we make it a little bit more difficult to go out to the DMV, well, then this is all part of this big voter suppression thing. Bottom line is, what because you have a, a location in a particular place, and it's been there for a while, doesn't mean that location always can stay in that particular place. In the real world, what is constantly happening is you have businesses that are closing redundant stores, for example, and yes, that might inconvenience some people. At the same time, my guess is this move is going to make it more convenient for some other people, like, for example, people who live on the west side that are driving. It sounds like it's going to make it easier for them to get to this particular location. So, yes, I can see that this might add a couple minutes of a bus ride, and yes, it might be that if there's enough demand out there, maybe the bus company will even add a couple extra lines 
lines if they really have people flocking to the DMV via bus, which I guess happens pretty rarely, would be my guess. But nevertheless, if there's that demand, you can add an extra bus line or you can increase a couple runs or do whatever you want to do to make this happen. But this idea, and this is just to me like the post office, the same sort of thing. No, you can't ever close anything because especially if you do it in an area that there might be X number of minority people in there. Well, if you do this, that means they're going to be disadvantaged. Well, of course, this affects anybody, whether you're a minority or not, that is living in this particular area. Bottom line is, even if you think this is bad policy, is this really, and, and maybe reasonable people can disagree on this, maybe they should have the two older things and they should keep them open. That That's, all right, maybe reasonable people can disagree about that. But still, at the same time, does that mean that it's a violation of civil rights to close two offices, consolidate them to a third office that's a little bit further out. That's really a civil rights violation. How did we get that far through the looking glass? Just saying. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is the time of the week we put aside the heavy lifting. We stop worrying about the silliness in Washington or the silliness in Madison or the craziness in the city of Milwaukee. And we have a little bit of fun. I call the segment Pop Culture Corner. Sometimes we talk sports, sometimes movies, sometimes cars, sometimes, well, if food just depends on what tickles my fancy in a particular week that I think hopefully will tickle yours as well. We live stream this on Facebook Live. So if you go to Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ, you can see what's going on here. And we're, we're up and about now. All right. O- over... It's sort of interesting because, as I think many of you know, I, I got married a few months ago, and it's always when, when you're you're living with somebody, there's always kind of this, you know, sort of breaking in period where you find out about individuals' tastes. And while my wife and I are incredibly compatible, and I love her dearly, the one thing that we are not compatible in, the one thing, is TV, because for me. I watch sports uh, a lot, and then I watch, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. So, you know, other type of shows. She, on the other hand, she likes to watch the Hallmark Channel. Thank God they've stopped showing those Christmas movies, finally. But I, I understand lots of people like the Hallmark Channel, and and she likes to watch something else. And, and her friends like to watch something else. Last night, we, we were at dinner, and we were talking about, about television. And I was saying how um, I was just I, – I, somebody was asking me, what, what's the last thing you watched on television, you know, besides, like, sports and stuff like that? And I talked about a couple of reality shows. And I said, well, on the other hand, AMC has been showing – they've been doing this Breaking Bad marathon. I loved the show Breaking Bad. Now, I've seen them all five, six times. Um, but, yeah, I, I found myself watching Breaking Bad. On, and I, and I watched – I watched, you know, five or six hours in a row. I was doing other stuff while I had it on. But, yeah, I, w- I was watching Breaking Bad the first couple seasons. They're showing all of them. I said, I love Breaking Bad. And everybody at the table kind of looked at me and said, oh, okay. And I said, well, what, what do you guys all watch? And starting with my wife and going around the table, everybody, they, they loved, this was guys and gals, they loved Friends, the, the TV show Friends. And to the point that, you know, they were saying, yeah, well, you know, on New Year's Eve, we'd sit down and we, we, we'd watch, we could watch, or, you know, we, we could watch six or seven hours of Friends, you know, episodes back to back to back to back, which to me would be, I just shoot me now, you know, but I mean, I just, I, I, I guess, 
I guess it's kind of cute. I just never got into friends. I'm not being judgmental. I just never exactly got into friends. But spending like five or six hours watching these people, watching that show, it would just, it would drive me crazy. But that's the great thing about, you know, television and binge watching. There's all sorts of different things. I did say to my friend Mary, who was telling me that she's got um, all 10 seasons of Friends, you know, on, on DVDs, I did say, if you're ever trying to come up with a gift for us, for the love of God, please don't make it that. Because I know my wife would then be, you know, fire up the Blu-ray disc player and let's watch 10 seasons of Friends back to back to back to back to back. So I'm a Breaking Bad guy. Um, my, my friends and my wife, they're, they're friends people, and that, that's okay. That's the great thing nowadays about whether it's DVRing or the Blu-ray discs or Netflix or Hulu or those things, is that you can go back and you can engage in, in binges. And, and over you know my vacation the last couple of weeks, I, I did. I admit I was binging on Breaking Bad. Other people were binging on Friends. But I thought for the first pop culture corner of 2018, let's talk about binge-worthy TV shows. All right. Maybe you've just come off a binge if you had some time off during the holidays. Maybe because it's winter and we can't get outside and do stuff and the Olympics aren't starting for a while and the Packers season has ended depressingly early. All right, so you're sitting there, you're looking at that TV set and you're hauling out the DVD or you're going to Netflix or whatever. All right, what in your opinion is the most binge-worthy TV show out there? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, I have been binging on on Breaking Bad lately. That's a good one. I'm not sure I think that's the most binge-worthy one. I'll give you another nomination in just a couple minutes. But for you, if you're going to sit down and watch hours and hours of, of TV or seasons and seasons of TV shows What's the show you're watching? 414-799-1620. And once again, we're also live streaming on Facebook Live. Back with your calls and comments in just a moment. As I always say when we do these segments, I encourage you to call in early because the phone lines tend to jam up, and I want to get to as many calls as we possibly can. And go with your first instinct. Sometimes people tend to overthink this. But when I say, hey, a binge-worthy TV show, what comes to mind? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 241. This is Jeff Wagner, WT. TMJ. 243, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're up on Facebook Live, except we're sideways. <laughs> Dan Dan, the social media man, we're sideways. So you can you can just kind of tilt your head at a 90-degree angle, and you can see that. Um, we're talking about binge-worthy TV shows. Our text line absolutely exploding. Let's see. Top Shelf, Top Chef, Hell's Kitchen. Um, let's see. The Punisher. And Ozark, I haven't seen either one of those. Uh, let's see, Jim, uh, House of Cards, currently watching that. A lot of people saying Sons of Anarchy, which is the old, um, like the motorcycle, uh, the TV show that ended a couple of years ago, Katie Seagal being in that. 414-799-1620, most binge-worthy TV show out there, Chuck in Brookfield. Chuck, you're first. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Uh, Game of Thrones. Okay. No doubt about it. And, uh, you could throw in maybe uh, Boardwalk Empire and The Sopranos as well. How how many times have, did you do you watch have, did you watch Game of Thrones when the, it was it was out like week after week? Yes. Okay, and so then you go back and you kind of watch them all in the binge, huh? I own every season. Yeah. See, I I haven't I have 
I've only seen a couple of the shows from the first year because I'm trying to read the books, and I, admittedly, I, I've been doing a lousy job of that. I'm only midway through the second one, so I keep saying I'm going to read the books, and then I'm going to go watch the TV show. But I, I, everybody tells me the TV show is just absolutely tremendous. Yeah, and we have to wait a year now. Right. The last six episodes. Right, to figure out how that's going to set down. Now, thanks to culture, I, I, you know, I really, I, I should, I should knock those out. Um, it's just, I, I've got all these other books that are there, and I've had all this other stuff going on. 414-799-1620. Mike in Madison. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Binge-worthy TV started with 24 for me. Right. That started it all. Right now, are you talking? Are you going back to like the 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 original one with like Keith or Keith for Sutherland? Right, yeah, the first couple of years, season, yeah, yeah. For I think five seasons were the, the the I think it was five seasons that I found thrilling and couldn't stop to the right. point where I I wouldn't go to bed at night. Really. <laughs> Yeah, I was pretty addicting, pretty pathetic. Well, no, 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 thank, no, it's not pathetic. I mean, it's it's not pathetic at all. It's just kind of that entertainment. That's the great thing about some of these TV shows. They, they just get you completely and totally wrapped up in them. 414-799-1620. Dave in West Bend. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Uh, mine is justified. It was a tough choice between that and uh, Prison Break. Right. I um I loved Justified. What did that that run that that ran like five seasons, I think, maybe six, five or six seasons. Ah. Yeah. I like I, I like Timothy Oliphant as an uh, actor. Right. Uh, Exactly. You know, he, he was in Deadwood, which I think is another, you know, Deadwood is another one that's just an incredibly binge-worthy TV show. But, right, Justified, where he played the U.S. Marshal back home in Kentucky. No, thanks. To, I, I was a huge fan of, of Justified. Um, and, and actually, I mean, I think it ended about at the right time. You know, if we were talking about binge-worthy TV, Deadwood on HBO ran three seasons. They keep talking about trying to, you know, bring it back to kind of wrap it up because it's one of those TV shows that ended way too soon. I don't know that that's ever going to happen in real life. But, um, you know, Deadwood would be one. Justified would definitely be another. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Jenny in West Bend. Jenny, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Okay, binge-worthy TV. Uh, definitely Stranger Things. Okay, I've I met... I have three people that just texted me saying Stranger Things as well. I've never seen that. What's it about? Uh, it's kind of a sci-fi mystery type series. Um, I'd heard a lot of talk about it, and then my son, who's 12, and I uh, both were interested in seeing it, so we sat down and literally watched both seasons in like a day and a half. Okay. So definitely been. <laughs> okay, but it was worth I mean, it, it just it, it, it drew you in, and once you started watching, you couldn't stop. Absolutely. Yeah, that's well. That that's I, I make. Thanks for calling. I mean, I know a lot of people who are raving about that show, and that's one I've just never seen. But um, yeah, I like that. Okay, let's see on our if we go to our Facebook Live. Uh, Bob says Band of Brothers. You know that that's a great one. You know they show it every right around Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They they tend to show a lot of those back on HBO. But that's a that's a great one. I like Band of Brothers, which is the war in Europe more than uh, the other one they did, the Pacific. Um, just because Band of Brothers follows the same group of people throughout the uh, throughout the war. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's see. A lot of people are saying Ozark. Um, I, I, I have not seen Ozark either, but a lot of people are putting in for that. Oh, here's one on our text line, Northern Exposure, which was, 
a, a weird but outstanding show, ran for five or six years, I want to say. I love Northern Exposure as well. And, right, that's one. It's just so bizarre that you sit there and you, you watch that. That would be a great binge-worthy show as well. 414-799-1620. Beth in West Allis. Beth, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Um, long-time listener, first-time caller. This is what motivated you to pick up the phone, huh? <laughs> yeah, yes. Actually, because actually I was watching this during – over the holidays, Mythbusters, because I you could it's entertaining, but you can actually learn stuff too. You know, it, it's interesting that you would say that. I, I got to admit, I've never seen Mythbusters, but one of the people that I was with last night was saying you should really check out Mythbusters because it's it's just addictive TV. Yes, exactly. Um, no, thanks. For, okay, I'm, I'm actually I'm making a list here. Mythbusters, that sounds good. I, I will tell you. Um, Breaking Bad, like I say, I get drawn into that. Anytime there's one of these marathons on, I, I will sit, and even though I know what happens, I, I see different things every time I watch that show. I think the most binge-worthy show, though, for me, continues to be – there's actually two shows, and both are HBO shows. One is The Sopranos. Um, I just I, – I, they were they were showing a couple of ones from the first season. Uh, actually, they were showing the pilot, and I watched it, and, and I ended up watching three or four in a row. Even though I've seen all the Soprano shows, I I just whenever that's on, I just get drawn in, and I I just I can't stop watching it. Even though I knew I do in fact know what happens. That's number one. The other show, and it's an HBO show that I can't get enough of either, is The Wire, which ran for five seasons. Um, it was actually. A couple of the seasons were really, really great. Um, some of the best stuff on TV. A couple, I thought, were kind of like hit and miss. But it's still, the, the first year or two in particular, just absolutely amazing. And whenever I see, okay, it's The Wire on HBO, I know that I'm going to be lost for six or seven hours. I've got all the DVDs as well. 414-799-1620. Valerie in Fond du Lac. Valerie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Well, hello, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, what's your show that I should be binging on? I am binging on two of them at the same time. So I watch two or three episodes of one, and then I move into the next one. And it would be The Crown on Netflix, yeah. which, you know, has to do with the Queen, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth and her earlier reign. Did they just come out with a second season of that? They did. Yeah, okay. they released it right around Christmas time. It's awesome, so I'm still working my way through the second season. And right. then Outlander, of course, is based on the books uh, by, by Diana Baldwin, which is now airing on Stars, which I get through Amazon Prime. Right, and this is the last season of Outlander, right? I think they're wrapping it up? Yes, for, yeah. for now, because there are more books, and I think the intention is, is to continue on through the book series as they are doing with you know Lord of the Rings and this and that. Right. But, uh, yeah, I think this is the last season for now. But, boy, I hope they continue on because I just love that series. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny that you should mention The Crown because I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm like the last person in the world that I don't have Netflix. But in our new house, I'm getting it. I, I've already made that decision, you know, and I'm signing up for Netflix and I'm going to have it. I've heard so many good things about The Crown, and everybody tells me that's another one that you, you just turn it on and you're not going to be able to turn it off. It, it is so true, and I tell you, you know, being American and us really not having any insight on what really goes on in England as far as the monarchy and this and that—at least for me—I mean, just seeing how it runs and the 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 way that the Queen has to go through life and everything like that—it really is an eye opener as an American 
on the British side of, of the monarchy thing, you know. So right. It, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I was reading some stuff that was suggesting that they've taken some liberties with history, you know, including, like, deal, you know, some people and how, how they dealt with, like, Adolf Hitler and stuff like that. But who cares? If it's entertaining, it's entertaining. Exactly, exactly, and that's the whole thing. I mean, it's to be entertained with a little bit of historical... (laughs) Right, exactly. You don't want to be hit over the head with the intellectual stuff. No, thanks for the call. Otherwise, you're watching PBS. Sorry, but you know what I mean. It's just... See, that's one of the great things. We really are in a golden age of television, and there's so... Actually, there's so much stuff out there. You've got the stuff on the broadcast networks. You've got the stuff on the cable networks, the Breaking Bads of the world, the Mad Men. I mean, a lot of people are saying Mad Men. Um, I, I, I always ran a little bit of hot and cold on that, but you know that's definitely one that that's kind of out there. Uh, let's see. I'm just looking at our list here because we're kind of up against the clock. Twilight Zone, Street Outlaws, Couple for Stranger Things, Last Man Standing, Highway to Hell, Dexter. Yeah, Dexter on Showtime. That was I never really got into that when that was airing, but I could see how that would be a a binge-worthy type of thing. Um, On our text line, Teresa says, My husband loves Office. Me, not so much, but I love him. Another one, Shameless. Yeah, I got uh, Shameless, which airs on Showtime. Um, First couple years, I I binge-watched that. I kind of got tired of it, but... um, That's the great thing about there. Great TV that's out there, and you have an excuse to kind of Sit there and say, okay, Packers aren't in the playoffs. Pitchers and catchers don't report for a while. Bucks don't play every night. And how many times can you really watch Friends? So you get to watch other stuff as well. All right, this was fun. First pop culture corner of of 2018. We do this this time every Friday. Thanks for participating also on our live stream on Facebook Live. Um, it is 2.55. John McCure and Melissa Barkley are next. We'll find out what they have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. This is Jeff Wagner.